0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening and good night wherever you are around the world and welcome to another episode from the Grandstand. Tonight we're looking at the first three rounds of Supercars actions from Sydney Motorsport Park, Simmons Plains and the Australian GP. We're going to travel over to Pakistan uh, with Australia for the cricket and take in some of the action over there. Uh, Looking at as well the Women's Cricket World Cup and uh, celebrating around the grounds, checking out everything that we've watched this month, all this and more from the grandstands with me, Michael Zolivari, and I'm joined as always with Kiwi Chris Riddell. Kiwi, how are you this month?
1: I am doing fantastic, and we also have a special guest sitting on my lap right now, baby Riddell. Hello, Phoebe.
0: Woo! Congratulations, that's <laughs> awesome news. Awesome news. Everything went well. I, I hope. I'm. Uh,
1: we, it was a bit rocky. We spent a week in hospital to start with. Yep. But yeah, she's. Yeah, a month old, and she's busy drinking, spewing, and pooing everywhere. It's great.
0: <laughs> Much like every other baby should. That's fantastic. Very, very happy to hear that, Chris, and all the very best for you and your partner and your family now. Dude, you're a dad.
1: No, what the hell?
0: <laughs> Who let that happen?
1: Why did they let that happen?
0: <laughs> oh, brilliant.
1: Surely some divine intervention should have happened by now.
0: <laughs> don't, nah. don't wish on it just yet.
1: I've got to stop making you laugh, that's not going to go well for anybody.
0: No, it's not. Uh, I've also had some fantastic news that's knocked me around a bit. I had COVID, so that's why you haven't been hearing much from Endurance Chat, and that's why you might hear me splutter along in the background across this podcast. But we'll make our way through, uh, because we've got a whole whole month of of sports to talk about. We were were saying this month would be a bit lean with just, you know, the Cricket World Cup and just a few things like that, but no, it's, it's been packed.
1: It's been mega packed.
0: And and as well with us uh, missing last week, we've got another round of super, (laughs) pardon me, supercars (laughs) to talk about. Uh, So that's three rounds to start the season, and already we're starting to settle into a trend. Uh, We'll we'll wind ourselves back to Sydney uh, for for the fifth round at Sydney out of six, and I mean they ended up being good races, mostly because the weather did the thing with with where it rains. Um, But it was. My opinion was that Sydney just got a little bit tired. What were your thoughts on the the race weekend at Sydney?
1: Thankfully, it rained and not Noah's Ark us. That's true. We wish it was on the cards for a bit. Um, well, I actually enjoyed the weekends racing. It was a good way to start. Um, yes, I get your point about being over Sydney. But at the same time, I think it worked well. Um, at the end of the day, I thought the racing was really not bad. I was great to see some of the new names... Really make a na- make a name for themselves, make a statement, and some teams who you expect to do better than they did absolutely have a near.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's that's classic. What Tickford at, at Sydney yep. Motorsport Park? They just Ooh. can't seem to get it together, can they?
1: They can, they cannot. But we should probably talk about the uh, main talking point, uh, Mister Van Gisbergen.
0: Yes, that is that is the title <laughs> of the show at the moment, Mister Van Gisbergen, yeah. because. Uh, after pulling a great strategy play by the team in race one to go with the three-stop strategy versus the two-stop, uh, he had a freaking nightmare in the second race, uh, qualified down the order and ran off the road and was on the wrong tyres, was a lap down at one point and ended up finishing sixth. Like, how, how how does that even happen?
1: If your bad day has you scoring 120 points for finishing sixth, you've done all right.
0: Yeah, that's not that's not too bad a day, I'll say. Oh. Yeah. And it just seemed to be that he could he could do no wrong that weekend, even with the problems that he had in qualifying and and mm. uh, falling off the track to, to come back and finish in sixth.
1: Yeah, a great result. Uh, also, race two, Chaz Mostert winning race two as well was well. We'll come to the later, but I thought that was going to be a great two horse battle with a great start of a two horse battle for the championship this year.
0: And the first time, in fact, when we were leaving Sydney, that the uh, championship leader had not been a Triple Eight or a uh, DJR Team Penske car for, I think, six years or something along those lines?
1: Well, yeah, it would be Scotty Mac, Scotty Mac St. winner yeah, yeah,
0: yeah that quite a long period of time so uh good for Mostert to get that one under his belt there was a few other hero drives on uh on the sunday as well with the rain really affecting how everything went um Will Brown up 15 positions after mm-hmm. starting 25th uh 23rd rather and Tim Slade up 14 positions after starting in 24th so uh good signs for them in the early stages of the the championship um on the other hand uh Tickford missed out on a podium across the whole weekend. And in fact, uh, Cam Waters uh, had to struggle from the back of the field in race one. Uh, it, it just, it isn't seeming to gel together for Tickford at all around, just, around that track particularly, but also just in general.
1: Well, yeah, around that track. I mean, last year they had so many issues around that track, but we've seen it with the other two rounds that we'll talk about. They've gone, like you mentioned in the Bathurst show last year, full Tickford.
0: <laughs> yeah, never go full,
1: full texted mode. Full mode has been engaged,
0: and I, I don't, I don't really know where they go from here because what they've got, uh, two very young charges in Thomas Randall and Jake Kostecki that they're expecting to be like the next generation of the team. You've got the old head in James Courtney, and you've got the uh the the one leading the charge in Cam Waters. But at the moment, Waters in the championship. Where where even is is he? He's not I don't even think he's in the top five.
1: I'm just trying to bring it up now, but Cam Border's biggest problem at the moment is is he's doing Shane Van Gisburg and things but too much and punting people off and causing issues and
0: Well okay, we'll talk about this when we when we get to uh when we talk in depth about Tasmania. There's just one more thing I want to talk about, Sydney. Uh, a, yep. a shootout on either day. What were your thoughts
1: on mm. that? I think in general shootouts are overdone. Um I like the spectacle of a shootout but on rare occasions like Bathurst obviously. Um and I think you should save it for the special events and don't do multiple shootouts in a weekend.
0: I I definitely agree with the second point don't do multiple shootouts uh, in the in the same weekend. Like even when we used to have Adelaide uh, it used to be the shootout was for the Sunday and the Saturday was mm. just a regular qualifying. I think that it's if every event is a spectacle, then none of them are a spectacle. Like, you know what I mean? If, if, if you yeah. try to, if you try to make every event, the main event, then you know, that you kind of loses its purpose. And I feel like that's where they're out with the shootout at the moment.
1: Yeah. Uh, to give uh, go to look back, Cam waters had an 11th and a fourth from Sydney. So he finished that. I think sixth from the table. Yeah. After the first was...
0: Full Tickford.
1: <laughs> Full Tickford. Uh, when you look at their other drivers.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, exactly. Uh, what about, um, what about uh, the race uh, round two in Simmons Plains? The re- return to Simmons Plains for the first time since uh, the old pandemic started. Uh, mm-hmm. Three races across the weekend, a two-day event, so really cramming all of the uh, event into some very short order. Uh, what did you think of the return to, uh, to the Apple Isle, the return to the Lamb Chop?
1: I think it just showed how much... We missed it, and how brilliant the racing is down there!
0: It is pretty nice, isn't it? It, it doesn't look yeah. like much. It's a pretty unassuming track, but I, I, they they really put on a good show.
1: Yeah, I mean they do. You know, they're at Some people have been making noises that hey, oh here goes, there goes the screaming baby.
0: Sp- speaking of making noises,
1: that supercars don't necessarily give them the full proper, I guess, a run of it because of the support categories because they had what Tazzy tin tops and Aussie racing cars. And I think they could do more about at that, but I think it still makes a great two day spectacle
0: I, I I certainly get that perspective um I think at the moment it's still hard with uh everything coming back you know full speed mm. uh it, it is hard to get people to commit to not just got, doing an interstate event but also doing an interstate event where they're going to have to ferry their cars across as well yeah so, yeah
1: uh, I, so I, for, I don't have sympathy for those arguments so much um I mean I do think back to a few years ago where they had Australian superbikes as part of the card. And that would be cool to see again.
0: Mm. Yeah. Either way, um, it was pretty cool. And something I really liked watching the Tasmania coverage is they really worked hard in filling the broadcast with interesting perspectives. Mm. So, you know, talking, uh, doing a lot of work in explaining the track and, uh, like, particularly turn four and how much of an elevation change that has. Like, it's not super-duper clear on TV, but when they actually did the feature on it and showed how how, just how much of a dip that is, they did a really good job of that. And then, Larko Larko is too good for supercars. Larko is too good for anyone. Just give Larko the world, please, and let Uh, him explain it to us.
1: Based on Harry was explaining Formula 1 coverage, I'm thinking even Formula 1, he could be doing an amazing job of. I also think having Marcus Ambrose, Tasmania's hero, as part of the coverage for that stuff as well, is a master strike. But it's interesting you mentioned turn four because that was one of the big talking points out of the weekend.
0: Yeah, and particularly the the sort of Move that Van Gisbergen Gisburg- was making in the first race, not so much the second and the third, but uh, the 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 different running lines and um, mm. you know making a little bit of contact on the rear quarter panel. So so the the situation was uh, the, the fast line at turn four is really the high line where you run it at the very, very top of the bowl, carry as much speed as you can and then shoot out the other side. But what that essentially, does- is Essentially better the cross line. Yeah, pretty much using the height of the berm. Um, but that mm. does leave you vulnerable to a car that kind of ducks underneath and takes the sort of what you'd call like the actual apex of the corner. And Gisbergen was very happy to take the actual apex of the corner at the cost of making contact with the, the uh, car in the lead on exit like just around the B pillar or just behind what were your thoughts on on that sort of habit and the run-on effects of the side draft and then making the move down at turn six
1: I'm not convinced I liked it I mean supercars has always taken a sort of bump and barge attitude to passing and I think it was right on the edge of what was legal and what was what should be allowed and I'm and even Larko, I think the following day he mentioned Craig Beard was like, N- no more of that please, Shane. Yeah. And I think that's the right call because if you start allowing that, then what's to stop people trying to do it, let's say, turn seven Adelaide or, you know, um, oh, scarily enough, out of the Forest Elbow.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's not see it out of Forest Elbow. Thank. You, I, think, you know. I, I think the situation with turn four at Tasmania is that it's unique in that respect. I don't think there's any other real part of the calendar where you can get away with that sort of contact um and you know get away with it you know uh uh frosty tried the same thing with scott Pye, and they didn't get away with it and they ended up beating (coughs) each other into the wall
1: yeah and right didn't he um was it frosty who ended up stranded on the um no no jack lebrock as well later on in the race he fell victim ended up stranded and they would with his car. His car was beached.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, so, uh, so it is. It is particularly a skill, and mm. I, I think, I think Van Gisbergen knows what he's doing when he takes that inside line, and he knows contact is going to be a consequence of it. But I don't think he's intending to make contact, if that makes sense. So he's yeah. he's intending to take that inside line, knowing that contact will be a consequence, but he is not. It purposefully making contact with the other driver.
1: Uh, I think it's a little more deliberate than that. I, uh,
0: I, I didn't, uh, I didn't really buy that. And I mean, I know oh, I'm a Shane Van I... Gisbergen fan, and I know that I have a bit of a bias there. But I, it didn't look like, for example, he was turning into the other car. It just like that was mm. the space that he was in, and the other car was all of a sudden in that space as well. I don't know.
1: I I mean, we know he can do it without that because, you know, you do that in a GT3 car, it's a much different story. Yeah, that's true. So we know he can do it without that. So I'm not just not sure it's necessary. But even being told not to do that anymore, it didn't stop him. He won the other two races anyway.
0: He cleaned up the whole weekend. He took three wins in a row. And again, at that point in the season, after race five, basically everyone had had a bad race in the season. Except well, I mean, including Van Gisbergen, but his bad race was the sixth. Like Moser was struggling in uh, in Tasmania. Oh,
1: M- Moser had a shocker.
0: Mm, absolutely,
1: a twenty third and an eighteenth.
0: Yeah, an absolutely shocking pair of races. Um, Deeper Pasquale had a race where he finished down the order. I think it was this uh, the last race of the weekend. No, he was uh, well in the mix for the most part.
1: Sixth, uh, sixth isn't a podium in the last one, but. Nothing too dramatic. DGR, Will Davidson had a shocking race too, but DGR really haven't been. They've been, they've been good, but they haven't had any luck or any driver skill go their way.
0: They haven't had the cutting edge. Yeah, and I think that's the difference so far. Is that that Red Bull with Van Gisbergen in particular has had the cutting edge every single time. And it, even when hmm. they haven't had exactly the car pace that they want, they've managed to find a way to win. Uh, and that was the thing that sort of happened on in Tasmania. Van Gisbergen found a way to win every single race. And uh, and it and, wasn't even close.
1: Yeah. And even in race two, Brock Feeney, their rookie, second place.
0: Yeah. And like, well done to Brock. That's a, that's a pretty big coup coming into the main game, not having ever seen Tasmania before and uh, and getting onto the podium. And he qualified on pole that race as well, which is pretty wild.
1: Yeah, not bad for a guy four races into his main game career.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Um, I do want to say big shout out to Matt Stone Racing to have both yes. of their cars in the top 10 for the last race and uh, in terms of qualifying, and particularly the repair job that they did for Jack LeBrock because the fact that they even got that car on the grid was an achievement mm-hmm. in itself.
1: I mean, in the end, it wasn't quite finished and they weren't able to actually be super competitive but the fact they did what they did. And Matt Stone, I think, have been one of the unluckiest teams of the season. Both pair cars, Todd Razorwood and Jack LeBrock, have just had numerous issues, um, numerous incidents. One or both of their cars always seems to be broken. Like qualifying at Melbourne, they both they both been their cars in the same session.
0: Yeah, that was quite unlucky for the pair of yeah. them.
1: And when they're ten minute sessions with back to back turnaround, you know, back to back sessions. Yeah, but we'll come to that. We'll come to that. Um, but yeah, I thought Tessie, overall really good weekend.
0: Really good weekend, particularly for Van Gisbergen, who already That's left the, left the apple Isle with sixty seven points and uh, mm-hmm. as a lead. So that was only going to get bigger once we got to new, uh, to Melbourne, where we had the two uh, sets of two very good quick qualifying sessions, wherein even still. Vengiersberger missed setting a lap and finished one of the sessions without a lap time, thanks to a red flag. But yeah, <laughs> but managed to get on the podium for that race regardless. Like holy, and
1: twi- yeah, that's twenty-two positions in twenty laps.
0: And, and like, sure, there was some some problem with the tire, which I do want to talk about because I found yes. that one very very particularly interesting. But they. <laughs> Red Bull just don't get it wrong. They just don't get it wrong. They made the right strategy call and it paid off. And like, not only did it pay off, but they managed to, but like Shane in particular managed to drive their way around a bad qualifying yet again. It's ridiculous.
1: Yeah. yeah and I, I think it gives me pause to reflect on a call I made at the start of the year saying that Triple Eight may to take a few races to get into it with the new engineering crew and all of that. Nah. Nah. <laughs> Not a chance.
0: Not even a little bit. Like out of the mm. straight out of the gates, they've been like doing the three stop at Sydney straight away to to really you know mark that they were they had their heads in the game. Bam, straight away go to go to Tasmania, three wins out of three, and then go to Melbourne. You qualify at the back of the grid and you get a podium for out. Like that is that is ridiculous. It's
1: absolutely certifi- certifiably insane. Is that a um, word? No, it's not.
0: Certifiably, absolutely, it's a word.
1: Is my pronunciation a bit of it a word? No, it's not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was a story that kind of continued through the weekend. You had uh, Gisbergen winning race two comfortably. You had Gisbergen mm-hmm. winning race three comfortably. And the only blight, the only blight on the weekend, and so far the only blight in the championship for Shane van Gisbergen was a tyre delamination after a lockup in in the latter stages of race four that saw him drop down the grid to 20th. And like, that is the only problem. And even then, even then, Chris, they still walked away with the Larry Perkins trophy for being the best all round the, on the weekend because all of the other teams up and down the grid had a worse race than they did.
1: Yeah, uh, Chance Mostert one two, a fifth and a 22nd. David Reynolds, two three podiums and a retirement.
0: And I mean, like cool. uh, Tim Slade was the the other one who had a very good weekend, uh, you know, hmm. with two fourths uh, and two top tens. But even then, that's not not quite enough for him to overthrow Van Gisbergen. Like he, it's just it's, it's it's they're unflappable. They cannot be yeah. flapped.
1: They cannot be flapped. Actually, uh, we mentioned David Reynolds. I wanted to shine a shine a light onto Grove Racing. They've really impressed me so far this, the start of this year,
0: absolutely, particularly
1: particularly since Tasmania.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, David Reynolds, he's currently sitting ninth in the championship, but that doesn't really reflect just how well they did in Melbourne. I mean, we, we mm. did mention that they they took two podiums for Reynolds in a fourth place. Um, on top of that as well, they took a double podium with Lee Holdsworth picking up the pieces after Reynolds, uh, Sorry, uh, Mostert and Courtney ran into each other.
1: Yeah. Um, I want to talk about that incident later as well. Another uh, light I want to shine, Gary Jacobson.
0: Absolutely. So, how was uh, Jacobson's weekend?
1: Uh, so he had three results in the top ten. Uh, this is from Premier Racing in the Subway Car. His best weekend to date in that team that, formerly known as Team Shitney,
0: affectionately known as Team Shitney.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think that's a sign that this that Peter's, Peter Peter or however you pronounce his surname. I think I've been pronouncing it wrong. He um. He's starting to turn that team around, and if okay, ignore Chris Pither, but there's just signs there, and it's just a shame that he was over in Perth drag racing. You didn't really get to be there in person for it.
0: You say you ignore Chris Pither, but Pither's actually ahead of Jacobson in the championship at the moment.
1: Yeah, that's because Gary Jacobson had a did not start.
0: Ah, yes, of course. Um, that was was that in Tasmania?
1: That was Tessie.
0: Yeah, so it, it's it's been an interesting little start to the championship at the moment. And like, if you said to me that Van Gisbergen was going to qualify at the back of the grid on Saturday and extend his championship lead by the end of that race, like that's that's ridiculous. And yeah, kind of that kind of goes to sum up. Like Van Gisbergen is the main character of the V8 Supercars at the moment. We're just kind of watching his story. That's what it feels mm.
1: like. And of course, we should mention in between. S- Tasmania and Melbourne he came second in a rally.
0: Yeah, like (laughs) up against people who (laughs) rally full time. And by the way, he put one of the special stages up on YouTube and you can go find his YouTube channel and watch it and at one point, I think it's about 3 minutes 20 into the video, he does, like, the co-driver calls, like, a very sharp right-hander, and Van Gisbergen does a full scanty flick right into it in front of the crowd, and the co-driver says, show off, and then immediately starts going with the rest of the pace notes. I'm like, holy shit, that is so good.
1: we <laughs> yeah, can watch that. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, the sky's the limit for him whenever he decides to go overseas. And we're going to see him in a GT at Bathurst this year, obviously. We're also going to see him in the 6th hour. We're going to see him at Le Mans.
0: Yep, definitely. in And a, in, a, a, <laughs> in an LP2 car. I think it's a Ligier. No, 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 he's in a Ferrari. No, you're right. He's in the Rizzi Ferrari. That's it. We yeah. talked about this.
1: Yes. So he's in a Ferrari there. So that's going to be, and I reckon that could be a bit of a dress rehearsal. If he gets a really good result, there'll be teams going, hey, Gizzy, here's a few hundred thousand Euro, you want to just move over here for a little bit, please. Thank you, mate. Cheers. That would be, be
0: that would be pretty wild.
1: And there'd be twenty five drivers then going, Oh, thank Christ, we have a chance of winning something.
0: Yeah, it's it it seems that sort of way at the moment. Uh what yeah. about what about the rest of the championship challenges? It's shaping up to be a Van Gisbergen versus uh DJR versus Chaz Mostert sort of fight at the moment. They've already broken away from the rest of the field. No race wins yet for uh DJR at this point. It, should they be concerned?
1: They should be concerned because they... I, I don't know what Will Davison's got to do to get a race win.
0: He's got to be faster than Van Gisbergen for a day.
1: Yeah, he's had four second places at the moment and you can just see he is just done with second places.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what he's going to do? Remember when Russell Ingall got sick of finishing second in the championship? Do you know what he did? Mm-hmm. He went into Adelaide at the start of the season and bought a wedding dress... So that way, (laughs) so instead of being the bridesmaid, he'd be the bride. And that was the year that he won the championship. So, so Davidson's just going to go when we get to Adelaide at the end of the season, he's just going to go buy a wedding dress and then he'll win a race.
1: That's a uh, that's one way of
0: doing it. Yes, but um, really,
1: they also need more consistency. They just haven't been able to string together a solid set of results yet. They've had. Well, they've had two double podiums. Or three oh yeah, two two double podiums. It's a bit of a surprise that Anton's actually second overall at the moment.
0: Well, I mean I guess it just goes to show how inconsistent everyone else has been. Like Davison got absolutely destroyed with the double stack and then uh Di Pasquale having the tire problem in uh in Melbourne. So like mm. he he got absolutely burnt there. Mostett had the kerfuffle with Courtney and then also Tasmania pardon me, Tasmania. Mm. So it just kind of goes to show that everyone else is kind of throwing it away at in Van yeah. direction at the moment. Yeah. I'll just pull out a few names from the championship uh, standings where, where we are so far. So Cameron Waters currently sits in seventh as the lead Tickford runner, which is not the sort of defense he would have wanted you know, trying to push for a, a championship victory. Todd Hazelwood actually sits in the 10 for, um, for Matt Stone racing, which is pretty good just behind David Reynolds, uh, who's behind Tim Slade. So, t- uh, cool drive really showing up the, the, uh, the Tickford racing stable that they've, uh, worked in. Um, Brodick in the top five, which is pretty impressive. He's kind of left Will Brown behind, uh, in the Erebus machinery, uh, Nick Perkett would have expected a better start of the season from Nick compared to where uh, Chaz Mosta is at the moment. So Nick's going to find a little bit of uh, a way to get uh, onto the same sort of level that his teammate is. And then uh, Brad Jones Racing, uh, all four of their cars languishing at the back of the top 20 at the moment, Uh, all of them having had uh, a bit of a a sorted time so far. So not exactly where they would want to be either, and then... Rounding out the bottom of the championship, it's two out of three of the Tickford cars uh, in the bottom three of the championship. Randall and Kostecki, who just have had no luck really and uh, no pace, so uh, it's it's been interesting to see how the the championship has uh, shaped up from the start of the uh, of the season. Um,
1: yeah, the highlight of Thomas Randall's season has been Fernando Alonso driving his car.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I mean, that was that was a pretty cool moment, but also like Randall has been. Has not translated the expected pace that we would have hoped that he would have.
1: True, but again, Tickford.
0: Yeah, this is true. I was just um, I was just mentioning that Waters is the the highest place Tickford colour in seventh.
1: Yeah, which is pretty average at mm. best. So, yeah, two
0: points. Do you wanted to go through?
1: Yeah, so Melbourne tyres.
0: Tires, right?
1: The supercars stuff that up. Okay, talk us through it. So we had so race one in particular. So we have. Soft compound, hard compound, tyres. Everyone has you have to use them in each race. You know, one set of soft, one set of hard per race. What I think was not accounted for was the loads at the newly configured Albert Park circuit, which when you're doing two seventy in that back section for like four or five seconds of turning left, are going to absolutely torture soft tyres.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So and we saw that with so many tyre failures in race 1 and teams accidentally made the right strategy call by being aggressive
0: yeah it's because it wasn't that they were um that they were degrading they weren't losing tread depth like it wasn't like we've seen for example at sydney where you you lose the tread surface and that's what uh, uh lowers your performance the tyres were actually just tearing up
1: yeah the tyres were failing mm. and that they seem to be glossed over by everybody, but I think it's an absolute disgrace.
0: Yeah, I would tend to. I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's a disgrace, but it was certainly a safety issue that they should have accounted for.
1: Absolutely, um, and we saw it like that's what caused Gizzy's failure in race four, I think. Was, yeah. it, was it, that was on the hard tire. was it the hard? No, was he was failure?
0: on the soft tire. It was. Uh, okay. no, you're right. Actually, sorry, he was on the hard tire. Yeah, and. Um, and even still, the hard tyre was struggling with, with the mm. loads through the, the back end of the circuit. So, yeah, it just seemed that there was so much load put through the, the carcass of the tyre that the actual tread, the rubber on the surface, just couldn't continue to be bound to itself. Yeah. So it was actually and we, tearing itself apart.
1: And we've seen it like at places like the Bend, you know, brand new track that deliberately has to use a hard tire only because they just don't know what's going to happen
0: yeah it's it's you would have thought
1: with the dramatic changes that we got being undertaken we got well, formula well, formula One cars doing 70ks and faster three corners that they'd be like okay let's just take a step take a minute to breathe and see what's going to happen here
0: no but the spectacle chris you can't no. you can't take away from the spectacle chris
1: I not I'm come to watch a spectacle of tires going boom. Yeah, exactly. What is this what is this? Formula One?
0: <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> no, I totally get it. And um it was quite a... I, I, it was quite interesting to see how it all panned out in the first race, but after hmm. everyone kind of expected that to be the case, I think supercars maybe realised, well we screwed through pooch here and we just kinda of have to live with it and I think that's that's yeah. where we that's where we ended up. So
1: I think at the end, yeah, the teams were just doing the best they could. They realized, okay, optimal strategies, be on the soft tie for as little as possible. So you saw by the end of the weekend, most cars coming in lap two, three.
0: I I think they they figured out that you could get maybe five or six, but then any Mm. more than six, you were really pushing it. So
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, The other big talking point was that race two incident between Chaz and... Courtney James Courtney,
0: yeah. In a a, a race that was filled with incidents, but yeah, go ahead.
1: Because that incident was, I'll I'll describe it for those those who haven't been watching. So, last lap of the race, last corners of the race, uh, coming through the second last corner, Chaz is trying to go around the outside of James, and James is giving him no racing room whatsoever. So Chaz is on the grass. So coming into the, now Chaz is on the inside of the final corner, but just maybe two thirds of the car length or two thirds back. What's the word I'm looking for here? A third of the way alongside James Courtney's car. James has given them no room. Chaz hasn't backed out. Contact spin. James on the wall. They assess a pit lane penalty post-race for Chas Morseau, which I vehemently disagree with.
0: Okay. I am interested to hear why you disagree with that.
1: Because the incident would not have happened had he been afforded to rest in room in the first place.
0: I think, I, I think that's a fair call. Um, I also think that the secondary contact through the final corner would not have happened had Chaz not gone for what was an audacious dive. I think that's the, the contact that's been penalized. So I, I, my read on the incident was that it Mostert didn't have uh, enough of an overlap or enough commandment of the track in the final corner in order to make that move. I still, don't, I, I, I still don't think he should have been turf wide at the penultimate corner. I think that was dumb, and I, I, I think the reason that Courtney didn't get penalised for that was because he got tagged and spun out. But I,
1: I don't think that matters. I think you either penalise both or you penalise neither and say no one's predominantly to blame.
0: Yeah, fair. Because
1: enough. because that penalising one and not the other just sends the wrong message in my eyes.
0: Okay, I I reckon my my preference in that case then would have been to pre- to penalise both. Um, yep,
1: I'm not saying James Courtney needs a needs a drive through, and also a drive through at Albert Park is incredibly harsh because yeah, I mean, in it's lanes.
0: So much, it's so much.
1: But maybe you could give James a, a ten second penalty for being a bit of a twat, and Chazzy a bit of a twat. A, I mean, in general, <laughs> he just started every race with a ten second penalty.
0: So, uh, so had you given, for example, Courtney a 10-second penalty, he actually finished in ninth in that race. A 10-second penalty mm. would have seen him drop to uh, 17th behind Nick Perkett, and uh, Mostert finished in 22nd after his uh, post-race drive-through. I think that would have been fair for both of them. Um, what it did say to me, though, Chris, is that Mostert isn't thinking championship.
1: This is this is true, and that's another thing. Because if you are thinking championship, just go okay. I'll take the twelve point hit by coming 3rd Exactly. That's just bring across the line, and we'll whinge about Morgan lawns later.
0: Exactly that. That would be my thought. If if Mostert was thinking championship, he was if he was thinking he was going to have a real goal at the championship, he would have been a bit smarter, and he would have pulled out of that move when Courtney took him, you know, along to Jim's mowing. Like that's, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, to to me it was a bit unnecessary, but I do agree that that Courtney should have been penalised as well. Yeah. Ah, um, oh,
1: hey, hey, Hotley hold, hold, holds worth a much deserved podium.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> uh, double podium for the Groves on Stephen Grove's birthday, like that's a that's huge.
1: Yeah, true. And I think he, I think he backed that up by winning the um, Porsche Carrera Demolition Derby race in his class as well. <laughs>
0: far out (laughs) the Porsches were out of control out of control
1: they were not as bad as Porsche America Long Beach did you watch you didn't watch that race at all
0: I haven't seen Long Beach yet it's on my agenda
1: um I think race two there was was a 45 minute race I think they did seven minutes of green laps
0: oh okay well I'm not gonna watch that then far out That's as bad as when they were at Long Beach that one time and there was 45 minutes of caution before you even got a race lap underway because they kept taking each other out in the start line. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay.
1: Why do, why do we race at Long Beach? Anyway, moving on.
0: Supercars. Uh, so that's, that's the three rounds that we have started the season. One more round this month, right at the very end of this month at Perth, the Bunnings Trade Perth Super Night uh, at the very end of the month. Um. Night racing in Perth—it's kind of the wrong side of the seaboard for most of the country to enjoy like nice, good prime time, primo racing. Um, but it's it's a nice little fun track, and it'll be good to see the, the supercars make their way over to Perth again.
1: Yeah, I mean it's only one race at night on the Saturday,
0: which is all right.
1: Yes, and I think it's Saturday a night racing, even if it finishes at midnight our time, is fine. I mean, I'm I'm i up at midnight most nights now, anyway. So, as <laughs>
0: <Yeah, laughs> for me. A child. <laughs>
1: yeah. Hey, I've been able to watch so much racing just sitting here, feeding Phoebe on the couch, going, "Oh yeah, that's happening."
0: <laughs> how, how, how good, right? How good. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. But um, no, I love night racing over there. I think it just adds an element to Perth, and the crowd gets feral. They do. A, they've done a really good job with the pyrotechnics in the past. Mm. I, in, driver introductions coming over the hill fire because they crest it. So I think they'll do a bang-up drive again.
0: It'll be pretty good, and I'm pretty excited as well. Uh, it's going to be quite a drastic change going from the like what they keep telling us is billiard table smooth surface at Albert Park. Yes, we get it. You've said it 40 million times um, to the most abrasive track on the calendar over in Perth. That's going to be quite a a change in um, surface for the teams. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I am just want to check the tires for this weekend.
0: Okay, while you're doing that, I'll briefly mention as well, uh, we have had a change in local government in South Australia, which means that the supercars will finish their season this year uh, with the Adelaide 500 on the streets of Adelaide in the parklands, and it's going to be awesome, and I'm going to be there, and I'm so excited, and holy crap, it's going to be good to be at a racetrack again in the city. Happy day. Oh, yeah.
1: And, it, and there's moves to try and make it a permanent... Season closer, which is going to be just as good as having it as a season opener.
0: Yeah, it'll. <laughs> Pardon me, it'll be it'll be different. I've only ever known it as the season opener, um. So I have sort of a bit of a mental inertia behind that. Um, I do kind of like. I I did really like Adelaide as the season opener because of how much, how big a challenge it was. Like you you know, even Bathurst when they did the the opening round at Bathurst, it was like, oh yeah, you know, it's cool, but like. It's not Adelaide. You're not bounding over the curbs in 40 degree heat in the concrete jungle. Uh, you know, trying to trying to outlast the circuit as well as trying to win a motor race. You know, and like Sydney didn't have that sort of feeling. So it'll be interesting whether or not they can kind of capture that with a, a new season opener. Um, but having Adelaide as a season closer, that's going to be that's going to be good stuff.
1: Yeah, and that especially if Newcastle doesn't end up happening. Yeah, indeed. That's that's going to be a finish of Mount of Bathurst, Surfers, Adelaide.
0: Yeah, man, that's that's <laughs> terrifying.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, the tyre wars for the Perth weekend, all soft tyre.
0: Okay, that's fine. That's that's pretty cool then. Um, yeah. And with it being so abrasive, you'll see actually tyre degradation instead of tyre delamination. Mm.
1: Yeah, wasn't it a few years ago where Craig Lowndes did a crazy 2 soft strategy in one?
0: I think he, yeah, I think he pit just before the second safety car and managed to just roll mm. through the field with the brand new soft tyres, which is like, that's always something you can do in Perth. It's really, really cool. Hopefully we get to see something mm. like that.
1: And it's a short, short enough pit lane that it actually works. Yeah, well, so,
0: you couldn't do that at Melbourne.
1: <laughs> no, no. Um, that's going to be a great weekend. And that's coming up on the
0: 30th to the 1st of the month, I think. 30th of, uh, April, 30th of April, 1st of May.
1: Yeah, so it's the only one. It's the only other one this month. So yeah. a few weeks ahead, a few weeks of time. Great news.
0: Great news indeed. We don't we
1: we don't have to rush a rush a preview if we a review if we do the episode on schedule next time.
0: <laughs> yeah, that'll be doing something on schedule at the moment would be nice. What's the schedule? What is in fact a schedule? Um, <laughs> you completely derailed me. What the hell we're we talking about now? We <laughs> Um, <laughs> cricket, we like to talk about cricket after we talk about supercars, don't we?
1: Yes, we do, and there's been a fair bit of that going on too
0: So let's talk first about the uh, Australian men over in Pakistan We we built this up quite a fair bit last month um, Talking about mm-hmm. the fact that it was the first tour to Pakistan In something like 25 years, something along yeah. those lines um, so Yeah, we that... forgot to
1: account for something though
0: What did we forget to account for?
1: We forgot to account for the fact that the pitch makers over there were auditioning for their roles as runway builders in Melbourne.
0: <laughs> yeah, it felt a bit like that. Uh, it was you, they basically played on two and a half roads, effectively uh, for the three Test mm. matches. Uh, Rowla Pindi was basically Road Pindi. There was what fourteen wickets that got taken across the whole Test match was so stupid. It was basically like the Australia well, the, the fast bowlers acting as bowling machines. It was,
1: oh. which I don't understand because Pakistan's best asset is their fast bowlers
0: and their their swing bowlers as well. I think they actually yeah. came out and said, uh, like the the head of the Pakistan Cricket Board came out and said, we planned this to blunt the Australian pace attack. It was just like, well, you're blunting your own pace attack as well.
1: Yeah, What Idiots. are you doing? Yeah, I mean. It didn't help because they still didn't win the series.
0: No, they didn't. They they did it they did a dumb. Thanks for spoiling the ending as well, by the way, Chris. Well, all right. Uh yeah, so like it- fourteen test fourteen wickets throughout the entire test match. They like mm-hmm. and it wasn't even like a, an interestingly high scoring test either. Like uh Pakistan were going at like two and a half runs and over for the first two days. Like that's so boring. So boring. Yeah.
1: What was it? It was uh yeah, four seventy six for four. 459. If that's what Pakistan. Australia 459, all out, and then Pakistan's second innings 252 without loss.
0: I think at that point the Australians were just like, yeah, whatever. We don't care. Like, there's not going to be a result. Yeah. Like you look at the you look at the bowling card for the Australians. Um, and like as well, like as, Australians only took uh, like four, or three actual wickets because they had a run out as well, which was like admittedly really, really good, but like it was just they got nothing from the pitch. Like
1: yeah, if you if you, you shouldn't be getting run out in test matches anyway. So,
0: <laughs> how's this for a bowling card? So for the for the second innings, uh, Australia bowled seventy seven overs. So like almost a day's cricket. Um, mm-hmm. they they're three frontline bowlers: Mitchell Stark seven overs, Josh Hazelwood, five overs, Pat Cummins four overs. So between them, they bowled like sixteen overs. That's like not even half a session.
1: Yeah, Nathan Nathan Lyon bowled fifty two
0: <laughs> for the match. Yeah.
1: Oh, in the first innings. Yeah,
0: in the first innings. The second innings, he bowled 26. Minus Lavashane bowled 15. Travis Head bowled 13. They were just like, yeah, we'll throw the ball to anyone. You want Usman
1: Khawaja Karadz- bowled one.
0: <laughs> so what we're trying to say here is that it was a farce. The first game was was basically a farce. Yes. The second game had a bit more going for it Uh, with uh Australia uh, electing to bat first or getting... Told to bat first? I didn't quite know who got the toss. Australia Australia chose to bat first. Um, piled on the runs. Uh, basically, everyone got a start except for Labashain, which was kind of disappointing for him. Um, and actually got some reverse swing happening and managed to uh, take into the second innings a lead of 408 runs. 408, Chris. But
1: that raises the question.
0: What is the question, Chris?
1: You have a lead of 408 runs. You got your opponents out inside 53 overs. There's 15 overs left in the day. Why the hell are you batting again?
0: Exactly. Why? Are, and this is kind of like... So So there is this mechanic in cricket where if you have a big enough lead in the first innings, you can tell the other team that they have to bat again next. So the idea is that you just bowl them out twice Very quickly, the
1: the, the threshold for that in a five-day game is two hundred runs. So Australia was done with that.
0: If you've got four hundred runs on the board, you can enforce the follow-on. And in fact, it was only the third time in Test cricket history that a team with a a lead, (coughs) pardon me, of more than four hundred had not enforced the follow-on. The last time was also Australia, but against England in two thousand and six at the Gabba. Um, and we all know for the Australian cricket fans in the audience, uh, how that series turned out. It was five 0 Australia. It was a good time, mm-hmm. and then the time before that, I think England. Uh, it was some match in like the fifties where England had a five hundred run lead in a timeless Test, where like they they wanted to score a, a a thousand run lead or something stupid. So ignore that time. Yeah, but it, it kind of begs the question, Chris. What is the point of the follow-on anymore? Like, I mean, is, the, is... is the follow-on something that 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 ever happens?
1: Well, when when was the last actual follow-on we've seen?
0: So the last time an Australian team enforced the follow-on, I actually did some research here. The last time an Australian team enforced the follow-on was when David Warner scored three hundred in Adelaide, and yep. they uh they um uh. Yeah, they bowled out a Pakistan for 30239 in, in three days. Three days? Yep. Yeah, two days.
1: Yeah. So I've um got a link, I've just posted it in the chat if you wanna look at it. It's from it's basically every follow on that's ever been enforced. Since twenty twenty. There have been eight.
0: That's actually more than I expected, truth be told.
1: Yeah. Uh New Zealand's enforced three of them.
0: That's cool. That, how, what's it like having a, a, a test team that actually is aggressive and wants to take the game to the opponents?
1: Sorry, right when they're not losing to Bangladesh.
0: <laughs> Oof.
1: Which is, funnily enough, who we most recently enforced a follow-on against. Even Afghanistan's done it once.
0: Oh, wow, really? Against who?
1: <laughs> Zimbabwe.
0: Oh, well, there you go. That makes sense.
1: Because a follow if you enforce a follow-on, you have a 1% chance of losing the match.
0: Yes, and you're what you're really doing in that case is you're really telling your bowlers that you trust them to get the wickets.
1: And when you have 15 overs to bowl before having a night's rest, you've only bowled 50 overs. Your freshies are pretty. Your, your quickies are pretty fresh. You're asking to do another four to five over slog, and have a good night in the spa, drinking champagne, ready for tomorrow. Maybe not champagne. Yeah, but it's the perfect time to do it and they didn't and it bit them in the ass big time because they batted the second innings with no enthusiasm with no real um
0: no real drive
1: no no real drive yeah and they yeah. only ended up scoring 97 runs in that second innings
0: i mean they did declare so it wasn't they, i mean
1: it's they, still only going at fours
0: yeah, they they didn't really push the game. That was the, the issue mm. I had. That they didn't really push the game forward, and in the end, it almost came back to bite them. Like uh, uh, Pakistan weren't too far away from actually winning that game. Um, you know, they were only about forty run, uh, sixty runs away at the end of the game, which you know isn't a lot. But like, yeah, they, they they really didn't push the game forward, and that was the issue that I have.
1: I think the more interesting fact for Pakistan is they batted out one hundred and seventy overs.
0: Well, okay. I've got, I've got, I've got two stats here. The first one is that Pakistan's second innings, 171.4 overs, was only nine overs shorter than the entire Boxing Day Test this last year. Bloody hell! Right, and that was three completed innings. <laughs> so that's crazy. But they basically, <laughs> pardon me. They basically batted a whole test match themselves. The second crazy stat is that since the turn of the century, since Steve Waugh's time as captain of Australia, uh, Australia has enforced the follow-on, I think, it's 14 times. So, eight of those were Steve Waugh himself. So, the... And, and in that as well, there was a quite famous loss after enforcing the follow-on uh, in, um, in, I think it was, uh, whereabouts was it? Kolkata? Um, where... Yeah, the,
1: yeah where um, Ganguly and...
0: Where, yeah, Dravid and Laxman was... was I like all... Dravid and Laxman, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Absolutely it, mental. Yeah, so, like, it happened once, <laughs> pardon me, um, and, like, yeah, that, that was an awful time and, you know, very much... Like lightning striking twice, sort of moment. The thing is, though, since then, uh, war enforced the follow on, I think, seven more times and won seven games. Uh, Ricky Ponting had the chance to enforce the follow on, I think, 12 times through his tenure. He did it. S- uh, ha- let me count them up again one, two, three, four times. So he did it four times out of his. However many chances he had, since then, Australia has enforced the follow-on three times. So that's yeah, Michael Clark did it once in uh, in England in his last Test match. Steve Smith did it once. Tim Payne did it once, and these guys have had like eight or nine opportunities each to enforce the follow-on. So really, it strikes me that no one wants to enforce the follow-on anymore because they want to just keep batting or I don't know, give their bowlers a break, but the bowlers don't really need a break. It just like, like not after
1: 50 overs. Yeah.
0: Like Mm. is the follow-on dead? Is the follow-on dead, Chris?
1: The follow-on is very dead. I think unfortunately, because, well, yeah, look, it is dead. Teams generally now, uh, beholden to sports scientists it seems and they're like oh you can't bowl more than X number of overs and we need to give these guys a rest now so even if it, this test proved it even if it's a only decision you can make they're not making it Yeah. It uh, the, bigger of... question, the bigger question for me is how do we fix it because I think it's an important thing to have
0: oh it's an important thing to have because it really it's an aggressive strategy it, it really pushes the game forward and kind of grinds the other team out and like as you said, there's like a one percent chance that you lose after you enforce the follow-on. So like, why wouldn't you take that 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 mm. chance?
1: Yeah, even drawing is a one to five shot.
0: Yeah, and most of those would be affected by weather anyway. So
1: exactly following on because they've you know they've quickly gone okay. We said a hundred runs and ten overs. There you go. Good luck.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's it just seems a bit perplexing to me that the, yeah. that we saw that anyway. Um, last test of the series was really interesting, though.
1: Oh, last test The third test was actually great viewing. And for a while there, I always thought all four results were possible.
0: It, it certainly was for a little while. I was a bit put off in the first innings watching Pakistan bowl. Uh, bowling pretty much a meter and a half outside leg stump for a good period of time while uh, Usman Khawaja and Steve Smith were in. That wasn't enjoyable viewing, truth be told. That that
1: wasn't, and then Australia did the same tactic. To, to be fair, Mitchell Swipson was aiming at a patch rough.
0: Yeah, that's true, and actually turning it towards the stumps as opposed to the Pakistan yeah. uh, spinner turning it away. That was
1: that was incredibly negative bowling, and that's. I mean, it's not, I don't think there's much you can do about that. Eh. But because you can't really say, I mean, you can't bring in like the leg side wide rule you have in One day, because that's ridiculous. I think it's actually ridiculous and one-day cricket as it is. So but it
0: just—it just seemed it—it—it it, it, it came to me that it indicated to me that Pakistan were spending more energy trying not to lose the series than they were trying to win the series. And when it came to batting, that kind of rung true when, mm. uh, like Cummins and Stark found their rhythm, found some reverse swing, and just tore through them, like just completely.
1: Well, yeah, nine wickets between them in that first innings.
0: Yeah, they they went absolutely rampant. Um, yeah. and uh, and again, it it looked to me, yeah, it looked that like Pakistan were more more focused on trying to def- defend, um, their all standing in the series than they were trying to win. And yeah, and it came back to bite them because Australia went ran through them. So yeah, in, in in the very end of the series, um, Pat Cummins and Nathan Lyon were the tormentors of uh, Pakistan. Uh, just as as I made mention, just tearing through, just tearing through. Pat Cummins got some awesome swing going and uh, found found the way to just extract something from the pitch which had uh, not been uh, not been possible at any of the other locations. Uh, and then Nathan Lyon actually came through and cleaned up, which is something that we, uh, we love to see. Uh, we love to see spinners doing well on day five and actually uh, and actually performing. Um, Swepson on the other hand, the, the leg spinner that we brought in or that Australia brought in rather uh, to do a job, he really didn't have the best of campaigns. I think he only took the two wickets through the uh, through the series. And didn't get yeah. a, a wicket at all in the second te- uh, the last test, uh, Chris. What, but, would you read, what would you read on Swepson's, um performance? I
1: actually thought he was okay. Really? Yeah, because he was bonding to a plan, and for a rookie, well, for a newcomer to the team, I mean, he wasn't. I thought he was okay. Like he didn't. He wasn't expensive. I don't think in at any point.
0: He went, was for, bo- he went for three and a half in the last innings and two two point three in in the uh, in the first innings in that second game. Um, I, I I don't know. I just didn't. My 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 opinion is that I didn't see like much. I didn't see I didn't see something dangerous when I was watching Swepson. I just yeah
1: yeah. But I I have a feeling that people said the similar thing about another leg spinner who plays his first game and got carted and uh, didn't do too well. I mean, And fair. he turned out, to be, turned out to be one of the best of all times. Of oh, the best of all times. So, I think we just we owe him a bit of time at least. He's worked bloody hard to get here.
0: I mean, I, okay, yeah, certainly he's worked hard to get here. Uh, I just don't think uh, I don't think uh, an average after, of uh, what 133 after two games is all that good. Unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll reserve judgment towards him a bit more.
0: Yeah. Okay. Like I I'll 100% agree with that. I just didn't. I, I I didn't see anything that excited me. I mean, of course, he did have an absolute dolly put down late in the first set. Exactly. So I mean, if, I mean,
1: if you got Sh- Steve Smith fielding some of your catches, of course you're going to Boniface is going to be taking the massive hit. He had a shocker in the field.
0: <laughs> he did. Uh, I think he was saying that, like, because because the pitches were so dead, he had the field so close, which made any edge a lot harder to get a hold on. Yeah, I
1: can see that. Yeah. Uh, another another person who had a shocker was minus Levershane.
0: Yeah, like uh, Test, one of the best Test batsmen in the world at the moment. He uh, what had like he just didn't have he just had had, had nothing had nothing the whole series.
1: He I think Fox Sports what's more one.
0: Yeah, I think he deserved a one as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is crazy. But yeah, so that last game ended up with a Australia victory. So with a, I thought it was a really enthralling last day of play. It,
0: it was quite good as well. There was a bit of mm. time pressure, but Australia kind of always had it in the bag.
1: Yeah. And you just got that sense that when Pakistan got five down, it was just, yep, it's coming.
0: Yeah, indeed. Um Good series in the end for Australia. Uh the, the one day has went the way of Pakistan, but the T twenty went to Australia. Uh the thing that really struck me though was just how good spirits the the games were played in. You know, it was this moment between Warner oh. and Shaheen Sharafridi, who's about eight foot tall, where they're you know, trying to size each other off and then laughing it off. Um, all the yeah. fans <laughs> were very appreciative to have the Australian team oh, uh,
1: the, in the Pak the, the, the Pakistani habit and ritual of writing signs and at the game presenting them on camera great
0: that was good fun what was your favorite yeah. sign
1: oh god there was one uh, about pronouncing lavishane's Le- name i think and that was just brilliant <laughs> i find it now <laughs>
0: um i think my favorite was um uh starkey beauty commons you cutie that was that was a brilliant one i yeah I, it- <laughs>
1: Yeah, here, here we go. Hey, Manas, how do I pronounce your last name? The video on cricket.com.au didn't help.
0: <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Or, the,
1: or uh, there was a political one with the Pakistan needs. It was from Kwaja. And the Kwaja Pakistan has some politician.
0: Oof. Because, <laughs> uh, of course, um, uh, Khawaja is born in Pakistan, isn't he?
1: Yes, and he got a century, which would have been super emotional in that last game.
0: And he got uh, player of the series as well because he scored something like 500 runs, which was pretty mm. impressive.
1: Very much so. Um,
0: all in all, good tour.
1: Yeah, great tour. Um, and I think other two, like these other um, countries now eyeing off Pakistan because of how successful logistically this was. They're going okay. Pakistan's a viable tour destination again.
0: Yeah, it's like we, we can we can do this and we can make it work.
1: Mm. I think New Zealand's lining up something. Or New Zealand's doing something, doing. Crazy things at the moment.
0: Didn't you just have uh the Netherlands in yeah. New Zealand for a one-day international tour?
1: Yeah, yeah, and yeah, um, okay. New Zealand won all three games, but still having Netherlands there is great. Mm. New Zealand are doing a, a going old school with their tour coming up. I think they're going to England, Ireland, Scotland, and the Netherlands.
0: That's pretty cool.
1: So that's pretty amazing. Um. It's just, yeah, the more we get these associate nations on board in these tours, it's just, Australia needs to do it more, but it's just great to see.
0: Yeah, I'm 100% down. I love seeing the variety of of players and cultures playing cricket. It's really, really cool. Yeah, agreed. Another cool variety of, cult- well, not really cultures playing cricket, but personnel playing cricket is the-, the women's game. The Women's World Cup was on during the month, and we, we briefly mentioned it last week, uh, last episode, rather, um, that it was coming up. And boy, it was a cracker of a tournament, wasn't it? Yeah, it- it's- from, the- from the first game, everything, all bets were off. It was just
1: a great tournament. I mean... We, I think there was a sense of foreboding about how the end result was going to be, but the games <laughs> yeah, we yeah. saw, the games we saw, you know, like I think well, the first thing I want to talk about, New Zealand were disappointing to the extreme from my point of view. But that first game, Windies New Zealand, that was absolutely epic,
0: dude. That set the tone for the, champ- like mm. the tournament, right? Like from the from the outset. Like, yeah, it was a shame that the host nation didn't get over the line at the very end. But the fact that the West Indies were under the pump, defending a total that was subpar and just managing to bowl their way out of trouble again and again. And, like, how about the balls on Deandra Dotton to be like, I've not bowled in any of the last eight games we've played, but I'm bowling the final over when we need to defend the target and nothing's going to stop me. And she did it. And, like, it was She did it brilliantly. Yeah. And
1: and this is from the Windies who I don't think are that well regarded in the women's game.
0: They're pretty well regarded in 2020, cricket, I think. (laughs) Pardon me. Um, But as a one-day team, they're a bit hit and miss. And I think you can describe their tournament as a bit hit and miss. But the thing was, when they hit, they hit bloody hard. They hit hard. So not only did they beat uh, New Zealand, who were the host nation and firming up as one of the favourites, they also completely destroyed England who capitulated chasing a modest total. They like, again, the West Indies had no right to win that game, but they just bowled their way out of trouble and found the way to win something against an eventual, eventual finalist. And like, it, it really set up a difficult run for both the uh, for both England and New Zealand to get into the finals. Yeah.
1: And New Zealand ended up faltering badly, um, got destroyed by Australia.
0: Yeah, yeah, we did that.
1: Absolutely destroyed, bowled out just on for 30 overs. Had a disappointing loss against South Africa and then England's S- tight match,
0: snuck uh, over. The line.
1: <laughs> snuck over, England snuck over the line and that ended New Zealand's chances.
0: And and, and that was the thing. That was basically set up as a mini quarter final because both teams mm. had lost a lot of early games and needed to find a way back into the tournament and that was the avenue that England ended up taking. Um Chris for sure disappointing for New Zealand as the host nation to get knocked out. Um what do you think this means for the New Zealand women's cricket team? Are we are we expecting to see a sea change in their uh their personnel over the next few few years?
1: I would think so. Like a lot of those names have been around for a fair while now. Um It's not gonna be dramatic. The if I if I put up this squad list, I'm just gonna have a look at their quick squad list now.
0: So you got Susie Bates, Sophie Devine, mm. I Amelia Kerr, she'll stick yep. around for a few years. Amy she Bates, will. um, Manny Green, Brooke Halliday, a few young guns in there, Jessica, Hannah Rowe, Francis McKay, um and mm. Rosemary Mare played their last game.
1: Yeah, so there's a few old heads there. Um and I I just think, yeah, this tournament probably came a year too late for New Zealand. Yep. Uh, which we, we can understand why, and even COVID had an effect on this tournament with the first few games being held with a few spectators. So thankfully, the final was well attended. Yeah, but I just, and, I, just think, I just think yeah, we're just a year too late for New Zealand to really make an impact.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Um, I one thing I will say is it was great that the fact that New Zealand got knocked out didn't affect how many people were at the games and support from the crowd. And I, I think mm-hmm. the, the games were, again, well attended and uh, attended in great spirits as well.
1: Yeah. And hosting the final in Christchurch, and Christchurch is a bit like Melbourne. You could host any sporting event there, and if it's a big one, they'll turn up.
0: Absolutely. And, and they absolutely did. I want to talk about the final a little later, um, but mm. I do want to go back and just uh, talk through a few of the other games that we saw uh, during the tournament, um, particularly South Africa. South Africa... They were um, the second team on the table come the end of the regular regular games, Um, but they did it the hard way. They snuck over the line against uh, England in the last over, they snuck over the line against another team in the last over, and then this was the big one. In the last regular game of the tournament, they knocked out India in quite dramatic circumstances uh, with... A uh, with Mignon Dupree's basically holding out down to to long on. So by that I mean she got out. She got caught on the boundary. Um, it turns out that that it was a front foot no ball, uh, which meant that uh, Mignon got to stay at the crease uh, at the crease, and uh, they had to bowl another delivery, which basically turned the game around entirely and put it straight into South Africa's favour, and they managed to get over the line and yeah, knocked India out as well, which. Would be the second or third best team in the competition. They got knocked out as well.
1: Yeah that that turned that <laughs> turned that game from three from one ball to two from two.
0: Yeah, like completely on its head.
1: Yeah. So the fact that you know, good good effort by South Africa. You actually tipped them to make the final, I believe.
0: I did. I did tip them to make the final, and they faltered but, at the semi, like they always bloody yeah, do. we
1: for, we forgot they're a South African team in a cricket World Cup semi final.
0: So, again, I did some research. <laughs> How's this? Chris, in the entire history of the ICC competitions, South Africa has made the semi final, and this is including men's, women's, T20, and 50 over cricket. They've made the semi final 17 times. How many times do you reckon they've made the final?
1: I'm going to give them one, but I can't think what one it would be.
0: They have once. <laughs> Oh bloody hell. If you can guess the one time that they made the final, I will literally send you $10 right now. I'm loading up into my banking app. If you can give me the year and the competition, I will give oh. you 10, a 10 actual Australian dollars.
1: 1999 the Champions Trophy?
0: You are so close it oh. was it was the 1998 uh knockout cup which became the champions trophy you were, oh. off, you were off by a single Of course year.
1: of course 99 was the world cup here yes. of course <laughs> yeah, 98 was my no, no robbery the New Zealand one
0: uh i've got the list here that <laughs> pardon me that um south africa actually uh, south africa actually won that against new zealand
1: oh okay, yeah but yeah I'm... that
0: that is the only time that south africa has progressed uh, beyond the semi-final in an icc competition
1: that's crazy.
0: It, it is absolutely crazy because they were unflappable during the group stage. The only time they looked in trouble was when they played Australia and Australia just walked all over the top of them. But coming into the semi final, they had, you know, the best run scorer in the entire comp. They had, you know, a, a middle order full of Marazan, Cap and Mignon Dupree that had dug them out of trouble every time. They had a bowling lineup that had been able to take wickets and strangle teams and, as soon as Laura Wolvart, who was the highest run scorer for the team, got out for a duck, you were like, "Oh no, it's going to happen again," and it did. And it
1: did, and it wasn't really close.
0: It wasn't. It wasn't even close at all. They just they just fell up, fell apart in a heap.
1: Yeah, what was this? Yeah, well, yeah. I say it wasn't really close. England pretty much doubled their score.
0: Yeah, they, they, just, they just fell apart. Absolutely fell yeah. apart.
1: And meanwhile, the other semi-final, Australia obliterated the Windies.
0: And the Windies were hit and miss that entire tournament. They Mm. were incredible against some good teams and just abysmal against some other teams, including Mm. Australia and including uh, Bangladesh, which actually opened up the door for um, the likes of India and England to get back into the finals. So um, they ended up getting lucky uh, with a, a point given for a rainout for an abandoned game that actually got them over the line into the finals. But... I mean, they got over the line to get destroyed by Australia. And that and that was kind of the theme of the World Cup, wasn't it, Chris? Yeah, the,
1: the final match really matched how the tournament had gone. Australia batting first. Alyssa Healy. Holy cow, that was an innings to behold.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I had a friend around. We just watched that in absolute awe. And, and it kind of followed the similar sort of trend because... Uh, we'd seen throughout the tournament uh, Rachel Haynes be the one to accumulate at the start and let Alyssa get herself in and then once Healy got in she exploded and 170 in a World Cup final that's the highest score in a World Cup final men's and women's ever
1: what is it about that power couple Alyssa Healy and and, uh, Mitchell Stark performing World Cup finals I'm getting sick of it
0: (laughs) it's great isn't it Um, (laughs) you better hope that their kid loves cricket (laughs) Oh God,
1: If they turn out out going, I hate this cricket game. I'm going to go play netball. I'm sure that'd be dominating, but...
0: (laughs) Might get disowned in the meantime. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, it was just uh, an absolute, (coughs) pardon me, a demolition display from from Melissa Healy. And it really set the game up. You know, if you set something like 350 in a World Cup final, they're going to, you're really going to be hard to beat. And despite the efforts of... Uh, Nat Siver, who scored two centuries against Australia in the tournament without getting dismissed once, uh, was not enough to overcome the the Australian juggernaut. You can't define that average. Well, yeah, absolutely. You can't do it. It's impossible. Yeah, uh, but
1: she was the only shining light. Like, there was no other score above 27.
0: She just needed someone to stay with her. Ooh. And that, that was the thing. I remember saying uh, to, to my mate that if we get... Siver, we're just going to run through the rest of the team. But as it happens, uh, Nat Siver, she was, I think, England's best batter throughout the entire tournament. And the fact that she managed to be not out against Australia twice is pretty impressive. But in the end, we didn't need to get her out because we just got everyone else out instead.
1: Yeah. And in the end, yeah, in the end, easy win for Australia. I did want to ask you, though, I was thinking about this. How gutted would you be if you were Annabelle Sutherland?
0: Um, less gutted, gutted than I'd be if I was Grace Harris.
1: Okay. Was, so so I get, why are you why are you ask can, can I get my player wrong who stood stood aside for Elise Perry in the final? No
0: no no, you got that exactly right. Yeah, um, yeah. So
1: who um yeah, who what At Elise Perry ended up having to do absolutely nothing?
0: Oh, she did you know she got scored a few quick runs at the very end. So so the context is Elise perry the best all rounder in cricket at the moment um she injured her back in the late part of the group stages uh didn't end up playing in the semi final ended up getting picked in the final as a batter only so no bowling um and at the expense of Annabelle Sutherland who is an all rounder who kind of feels the same sort of role as perry um one thing that has struck me about this group of the Australian girls and will continue to to be something that I admire is the fact that. Even though there is competition between each of them for their spots, they all seem to want a common goal. They they don't not that they don't mind if they don't get picked, but the understanding is we are picking the best team to give us the best chance to win this game or this tournament or this cycle. Uh, so your like not necessarily your chance will come, but your chance will come if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. That makes sense.
0: So I guess I mean, like Australia dropped the second best bowler in One Day Internationals in Jess Johnson for half the tournament. True, <laughs> and they dropped Darcy Brown for a few games. They dropped Megan uh, Megan Shoot was the only one who played, or the only bowler who played all the games. You know, Sutherland played a few games. Carey played a few games. Um, the only, uh, Wellington played two games when they played two spinners. Um, the only player who didn't get a game was Grace Harris and that was because she was the backup batsman and none of the batsmen had any problems. So, but yeah.
1: Basically, it, basically, yeah, it was just Australia's unit, 15, 15 players, just far too good. And I think we all knew that. Well, I mean, yeah, and as, some... as, well as, the, as well as the World Cup. And what's it been like now? Five, six, seven years of total domination by these Aussies?
0: It was, it's been four years. So yeah. a lot of this has been built up Off the loss of the loss in the semi finals, uh, in 2017, where we were we should have won that tournament. Like, well, I mean, it's Australia, we should win every cricket tournament, but but we lost in the semi finals, and that kind of kick started the reinvention of the Australian team. You know, since then, we've played I think it's 38 one day internationals and they've lost two. which is ridiculous. It is. It is a little ridiculous, you know. Uh, it, it kind of had this inevitability of you know eight teams play each other for a month and give the trophy to Australia at the end because that's kind of what it felt like. And like as well, just to just to put into context how dominant this team is. Australia is missing their lead spinner in Georgia Wareham, their lead fast bowler in uh, Tale of Vlamek. Of and their lead uh, spin bowling all rounder and Sophie Molyneux. So those three, there's three people who would walk into any other team in the entire tournament who couldn't play for the Australians because they were injured, and yet Australia were just still good. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> phenomenal. And it's yeah, congratulations to them. Uh, next World Cup, I believe 2026 Or was it 25. <laughs>
0: Um, it might be 25 because of the getting back on the cycle. Yeah. <coughs> Pardon me. Getting back on the cycle again. Um, yeah.
1: 2025 World Cup of Cricket. Just doing a quick Google because this is preparation.
0: I do want to give a quick shout out to Sophie mm. Eccleston of the English team who yes. was the, the leading wicket taker for the tournament. She was spinning rings around every team that wasn't called Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, including taking Sixer against the South African team to, to get them through the semi-final, which is pretty impressive. Very um,
1: impressive, I think.
0: And um, and yeah, it, it was just a good tournament all around. Chris, what was your sort of moment of the tournament, do you reckon, if you had to go back and pick one?
1: <sighs> Look, I'm just going to be lazy and just pick that final, <laughs> Alyssa Healy. <laughs> Seriously, I can't go past that Any? They're just like the best... It, it, I reckon that's the best innings I've seen in the women's game.
0: You know what? It would certainly be up there, I reckon. It would certainly be yeah. up there.
1: Um, yeah, I, I'm i struggling to think of anything better. Only and is, to, do it, to do it in a final?
0: Yeah, that's the that's the thing that that really sets it apart for me, to do it in a final.
1: Yeah. um, Like, I don't know what it is about Australians in finals. Just step up to the plate and just do something phenomenal.
0: We just know how to win, man. We just know how yeah. to win. I'm personally sick of it. It's it's a habit. Um, I think for me, my moment of the tournament was um. I gotta say, uh, this is gonna sound really really bad. South Africa versus India, the just the absolute theatre at the end of that game. That was incredible. The 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 tension, the like, because India were ahead of the game. Then there was the like the. A 17 ball innings from one of the tail enders for South Africa that brought the run rate back then there was the tension like are they going to get bowled out are they going to get the runs oh no that's out wait it's a no ball that flips the table it's just it was just cricket at its very best and, unfa- yeah. and like unfortunately for India they, they got knocked out because of it mm. great tournament uh, watch women's cricket
1: hey, hey, watch just watch more cricket in general yeah 2025 likely to be in England uh so we've got that to look forward to and there's actually a new tournament in 2026 as well uh which is a six-team tournament uh really? i think the women's the women's champions trophy or something
0: oh that would be interesting
1: so that'd be cool as well
0: nice Okay. and okay. 2020
1: and, and 2029 women's world cup will have 10 teams
0: nice that'd so good. expanding the game always expanding
1: good. the game and it's what i need to do on the men's side as well but we digress
0: we in fact do digress uh so that's cricket um Important moment for New Zealand cricket. uh, Ross Taylor finally hanging up the boots for real.
1: Finally hanging up the boots for this final game against the Netherlands.
0: Bit of an inauspicious team to have your final game against, but he performed quite well, if I recall correctly.
1: Um, But yeah, job done for him. He can now sit back and relax. Yeah, that was a um, three-game win to New Zealand, obviously. That final game, he scored 14 from 16. (laughs) <laughs> okay. He actually had he actually had a pretty meager tournament in the honesty. <laughs> he
0: uh
1: yeah, he had scores of one, sixteen. And in the first game he had eleven.
0: <laughs> okay, maybe not the, the finished career he was hoping for. No, and
1: I don't think he got the ball in the in that game either.
0: <laughs> Oof. Um what else has been happening around the grounds, Chris? What have you been keeping track of that you wanna just share with us uh to finish off?
1: Well, I've been keeping an eye on Super Rugby, as I've alluded to last podcast. We're about halfway through the season now, Ooh, and it's right. at a, yeah, and we're at a really interesting phase now because we've had seven or eight rounds, depending if you've been affected by COVID or not. And we start in, and after this weekend's matches, we start to get into the Trans Tasman clashes.
0: Oh, that'll be good.
1: And that's when we start to figure out where teams actually sit, because if you look at the ladder at the moment, it's pretty much. New Zealand team, Australian team, New Zealand team, Australian team, grouped down like that yeah, with the okay. two Pacific with the two Pacific Island teams at the bottom. Yeah. So, and that all starts with the super super round in Melbourne in a couple of weeks. So that's going to be re- really where we see what's what. Form teams at the moment look like the Brombies from Australia, so they're taking AC, the Capital Territory, and the the New South Wales region. And Auckland Blues and Canterbury Crusaders from New Zealand as well.
0: So who do you reckon uh, is actually the stronger on each side of the Tasman at the moment? Do you reckon the New Zealand competition is a bit stronger or the Australians?
1: Watching the games I've seen, and it's hard to judge because I think the Kiwis have had the stronger opponents. Okay. Like the six New Zealand teams seem to be stronger than the six Australian teams as a whole. So I think the New Zealanders will come out on top. But would it be surprised me if, say, the uh, the top Aussie teams take out the Kiwi teams that are towards the bottom of the table, like the Highlanders and the Hurricanes?
0: Okay, yeah.
1: The Hurricanes and Moana Pacific actually have a game to play tomorrow to catch up from when they, when Moana had COVID.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay, because I can see that they've only played six games. Um, yeah. So, so who do you follow? Who, who's who's the team that you're probably I'm
1: a, I'm from Canterbury, so the Crusaders. So, And if you look, I'm assuming you're looking at the table, yep. Brumbies are on 31 points, they've played eight games, won seven, so if you adjust that for the equal number of games, they're pretty much on the same number of points as the Blues, Crusaders and the Reds, that's yeah. two from New Zealand, two from Australia.
0: So it's actually, it's actually very tight across the top there.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot will happen in the next few weeks when we start those trans Tasman games.
0: Fair enough. Is there a final series that gets played afterwards, or is it just the Yeah, league? this is
1: this is the other thing that irks me a little bit. It's a top eight.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's pointless, isn't it?
1: A top eight in a 12-team competition. I mean, I understand why they do it, because if you have a top four or a top six, there's potential that you have four or five teams from one country in that.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, but, like, if it's a top eight, you're only knocking out four teams. You're kind of... You're spending hmm. so much time just to knock out four teams and then go into a knockout system.
1: Yeah. The other, the other round that I'm really looking forward to <laughs> 13th is the round 13 on the 14th of May. That's when the Fiji and take on Moana Pacifica and Parramatta. Ooh. There may be blood. There may be blood.
0: Oh, really? If
1: you've ever watched a Pacific Island rugby international, they go hard.
0: Oh baby. That's, that's <laughs> going to be good.
1: They're both they're both at the foot of the table. They will want the pride of winning their first game against each other. It's in Parramatta, which means you're going to get 25,000 fans going nuts. I'm so looking forward to that game on the 14th of May.
0: Nice. That sounds sick. Okay, we'll keep our eyes out on that one. Um, mm. I watched the end of the biathlon season at Oslo Hol- Holm and uh, which was pretty sick. Um, of course, the, sp- the sprint pursuit and mass start to finish off the championship. Um, shout out to Norwegian Petrolhead and WBD Shumi who were there and took a lot of photos for me, which was really exciting. Um, it ended up being unsurprisingly Quinton film, who took the, the overall for the men. And, uh, it was Mate Osbu Reuselund, uh, who took the overall for the women. Um,
1: you just you make r- that name out of a scrabble back.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's, it's just a mess <laughs> of vowels in the middle. Um, get this though. Uh, So in Biathlon, they have a, like a globe. So like a championship for each individual discipline. Mm. So they have a a globe for the sprint, the pursuit, the mass start, the individual, and then the relay globes as well. Um, So the situation was on the last day that uh, Elvira Erberg, who was second in the overall, she'd finished second in the pursuit globe, second in the sprint globe, second in the individual globe. Um, Mm -hmm. she, She had the chance to win the mass start globe. Um, she had to beat Dorothy Vera who was leading by I think it was two positions um, so that was pretty much where the focus was in that last day um, except coming into the last shoot basically everyone in the first group missed except for um, Justine Brasas-Boucher who's the Olympic champion in the Mass Star so she goes off and leads and then there's a group of about eight behind her about 40 seconds behind who were fighting over second place and the commentators did some quick maths and realised that Elvira Erberg needed to finish at least fourth to win the Glo- uh, win the Mastart Globe over Brezard Boucher, who was going to win the win the race.
1: So okay, they up- what happened? So they
0: come up to the line. They sprint in a group of five. It was oh, um, god! It was uh, Elvira. Uh, I think another French woman. Lisa Theresa Hauser, who is Austrian, and a... Uh, I think Marta elsby Roysland in that battle as well. So, for, uh, like, uh, second to fourth in that little battle pack. Um, and they all throw for the line, and it was the second Swedish woman, Lynn Person, who beat Elvira on the line to take no. fourth position and relegate oh. Elvira to fifth, which means she lost the NASDAQ <laughs> line.
1: <loan>. Oh, my God. <laughs> God, and so so she, is there is now one one less Swedish woman no, in the world?
0: No, well, like no, none of the none of the Swedish team realised that, that was be that would be the situation. So they hadn't told um, Elvira or Lin in that final lap. To sort of coordinate it, so like they just threw for the line <laughs> and didn't know because they thought that their the real challenge was behind them when it was ahead. And yeah, as it turns out, the the, the teammate like effectively took the the globe away from from Elvira. So Elvira didn't win anything. She she came second in literally everything in the entire year. Um, I hope they
1: shouted her IKEA hot dog for that. Jesus.
0: <laughs> uh, God. Yeah, it was. <laughs> quite funny on the last day to, to watch that all happen but you know, great competition next year it's going to be a, a 10 round uh, championship going to all all of the cool stadiums so I might even try and get over to Oslo and, and hang out with some people that would be the dream um, so yeah happy days happy days on, on the snow
1: you really want to go to Oslo?
0: look I want to go hang out with some people to watch some biathlon I want to watch biathlon live I'm not a huge fan of snow. I'm not a huge fan of the cold, um, but we shall see.
1: You want to go to Oslo? No way.
0: Uh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I, I hate that. Um, what else have you been watching this month? Um,
1: well, I think we've both been watching with absolute wonderment and befuddlement at what the hell Australia's soccer team is doing.
0: Oh, my God. I don't really want to talk about it.
1: Neither we do I, but we, s- we should s- kind of mention it. We
0: suck. We suck. We're so <laughs> bad.
1: Scraping into third place in the ladder. Oh, my god. Meaning, meaning you have to do it... The extra, Australia has to do it the extra hard way, and they might not even beat UAE, let alone the Internet Continental Playoff.
0: Oh, it's going to be so bad. So the the, the story was um, we needed to... Australia needed to finish second in the, in the qualification ladder in order to get a ticket to the the World Cup in... uh, Is it in Dubai?
1: Qatar.
0: Qatar, that's it. And we just... We played awfully. We needed to beat Japan and we lost to Japan. We needed to beat Saudi Arabia and we lost to Saudi Arabia early in the tournament. We needed to beat Oman and Jordan. We lost to them. It's just, just... We're just hopeless. We have no identity. We have no system of playing and we just don't have any good players and it kind of sucks and it's not enjoyable to watch and, you know, it could be the first time that we miss out in the World Cup in, like... 16 years
1: yeah. yeah and that intercontinental playoff will be against Peru which is
0: <laughs> yeah well no way we're winning that
1: yeah I think New Zealand's more of a chance to make it than Australia hell
0: yeah that's so exciting for you guys because who have you got to play Costa Rica yeah so you've got the one one game to well one one tie that you've got to win like Peru's hmm. going to be a bigger challenge than Costa Rica that's awesome
1: yeah and New Zealand showed last World Cup they could shit out the result <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm well excited for you guys. You've got, um, who is it? Newcastle front man Chris Wood is your striker at the moment, don't you? We do. Have, you been, it. have you been tracking the, the Premier League at all?
1: Um, only from your reports of what the hell are man you doing.
0: Let's not talk about that because that's sad and depressing and I hate it. <laughs> Uh, New-
1: Newcastle would not do too badly, are they? New-
0: well, Newcastle are out of the relegation zone. They're out of the relegation <laughs> fight. They're they're um they're safe, effectively. In fact, Woody. yeah. Well, I mean, he didn't really help, but he, he he's part of it. So yeah, let's go with that. Um, yeah. The at the top of the Premier League, though, it's it's super duper interesting. We're in a situation we were in a few years ago, I think it was, where basically Manchester City has to win all of their games. And they win the title. Liverpool has to win all of their games to to put pressure on Man City. And they just played each other and played out an incredible two all draw. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a full on race to the line for those two, um, in terms of who wins overall. Um, the battle for fourth is well in the hands of Tottenham, Tottenham and Arsenal at the moment because Manchester United didn't even beat relegation bound Everton because we suck and that I I feel so apathetic about the team because that's how they play they play apathetically Um, and my neighbour who is from Merseyside and is an Everton supporter actually went back to England last week and told me that he got tickets to the United game and was quite excited about it and I can't wait for him to come back with his smug little face and just look at me and I'm going to hate it I'm going to hate it so much Oh, that yeah god damn it what it does do is actually gives Everton a bit of a lifeline because they were looking like they might be in trouble of relegation, which would be the first time in 70 years or something that Everton have been out of the top flights. So they've been in the top flight longer than I think any other team. So that would be uh, a bit of a shame, but they've found their way out. Thanks thanks to us. Thanks to Manchester United and how much we suck. So yeah, that's not fun, but oh, well, that's <laughs> that's life in the Premier League sometimes. You're done ranting
1: about how much the Reds suck.
0: Oh, I'm I'm done caring. Let's talk about Good. Let's talk about the month ahead, Chris. What have we got planned to watch for the month ahead?
1: Well, there's a couple of big events that I know we're both very excited for. Uh, the first one of those coming up this weekend. Well, actually, they're both this weekend. The paris Roubaix.
0: Yes, the hell of the North. The, my my favorite of the the cycling oh, classics.
1: It's so much just. It's unlike anything else, I think, in sport.
0: It's gross. It's 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 hell. It's hell. They call it the hell of the north, of the north for a reason because it's hell. <laughs> it's cold, wet, angry cobblestones, and wind, and muck, and disgusting. And boy, I l- freaking love it. Yeah.
1: Unfortunately, it looks like it's going to be dry this year.
0: I mean, truth be told, that's probably safer for the for the yeah, athletes true. and the cyclists, and you know they're less likely to get literally pneumonia um so (laughs) and
1: and literally cheese grated when they fall
0: yeah that too so uh that'll be uh that'll be good and like for those who haven't watched the cycling classics before it's basically like watching an endurance sports car race nothing will happen for long periods of time and then before you know it all of the nothing means something's just happened um yeah Yeah, think
1: think think of it like the cobblestones when you get about to maybe the seventh section is hour thirteen, and one of the Audi's has just crashed on track, and is a safety car.
0: Yeah, it, it, it all just sort of happens in an instant. So yeah. it, it's 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 a real it's it, it's a very team orientated individual sport cycle like long cycling, um, or grand tour cycling, classic cycling. Um, and it'll be interesting to see who who pops out the other side. I think even Tade uh, Tade Pogacar. Who's traditionally a grand tour cyclist has been looking at the classics, and he might even have a run at uh, at Paris Roubaix. Unfortunately, I think um, Wout Van Aert won't be there. Who's one of the Belgian, one of the best Belgians going around at the moment. I think he's just had COVID, so he's not going to be able uh. to race, which is a, a shame. Um, but Paris Roubaix is also the sort of event where someone can just appear out of nowhere and find it in their legs to yeah. to win at the very end.
1: Matthew Heyman. Classic case.
0: Matthew Heyman, exactly. And by the way, if you want to see the pure joy of the hell, the horrors of this event, um, check out... If you if you look up, I think it's... Um, uh, is it Orica GreenEdge? Was that what it that was? Orica,
1: it was Orica GreenEdge at the time, but now their channel is their current team. Right? So if you just find find their channel...
0: Yeah, so if you look up um, uh, Paris-Roubaix uh, Backstage Pass, uh, they basically do a... Um, yeah, yeah there they you go. they do, a, 26- they, do a, they do like a little behind the scenes of like the story of the race what matters and all that sort of stuff uh, and they did an edition of the 2016 race which is the one that we're referencing where Matthew Heyman wins um, and yeah it is quite possibly just pure unadulterated joy um, yeah. from a, from an Australian cycling perspective and it's a great way to learn about the the race as well and man it's 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 cool. It's really, really cool. Definitely yep. check that one out.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Now, the other event that we're looking forward to this weekend...
0: Back is at Bathurst.
1: Bath- Bathurst. Bathurst. It's time for the Bathurst 6-hour.
0: Wait, that's like half as long as it should be.
1: Wait, no. You're thinking of a different event.
0: <laughs>
1: so, the 6-hour six, six coming before the 12-hour this year, for production cars, and we have a capacity grid.
0: I saw it was like 70-something cars, which is mental.
1: 72 cars across uh, six classes with a couple of subclasses in there as well. With all sorts from BMW M4s, M3s, Ford Falcons, Mercedes, AMGs, Lancers, Volkswagen Golfs, Subarus, Mustangs, all the way down to Mazda 3s and Suzuki Swifts.
0: It's, that's brilliant. That's a brilliant mix of cars, isn't it? It's what the 12-hour really used to be, and I, I'm glad that this event exists to facilitate that.
1: Yeah, and what and because this happens over Easter weekend, and because there's most supercars competing, we get some decent, some really interesting names appearing on this entry list.
0: Like, say, Shane Van Gisbergen?
1: Yes, yeah, Shane Van Gisbergen driving an M4.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: Tim Slade driving an M3. Will Davison driving an M3.
0: So what you're telling me is that you want to be in a BMW.
1: That's why they created it. That's why they created X-Class.
0: For for the BMWs? Basically. Yeah, fair enough.
1: Um, If it's wet, then you might see uh, an A-Class car, which is where you get your Mitsubishi Lancers and your four-wheel drive cars come to the fore a bit more. Yep. Uh, Will Brown's having a go in a Mercedes-AMG A45. Nice. With Mark Griffin. Mark Griffith, sorry.
0: Yes, Mark Griffin of Australian uh, GT uh, Series mm-hmm. fame.
1: Yep. And there's some young bloke by the name of John Bell racing a Ford Falcon in that class as well.
0: My word, that's a throwback. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um,
1: Tim Blanchard's having a race in, the, in a Ford Mustang Mark I as well. Sick. And Grant Denya and Tony Quinn, which I think we might take out the A2 class.
0: And, like... Grant Daniel, Tony Quinn. They're pretty big names in Australian motorsports, aren't they?
1: Mm. Now, there's a car here, number 95, in the A2 class, George Medici, Marcus Ambrose.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: So, and then you get down to the C-class cars, the DZs. It's, it's just a great, fun race. I love it.
0: It, it, is, it is really just like a smorgasbord of different machinery, um, different production car machinery uh taken to Bathurst for the twelve hour uh, the six hour rather. So it it's good to see it's good to see that event live on as as the sort of postscript to what the Bathurst twelve hour once was um before it became the GT three monster that it is now. Um and yeah, it, it's good to see so many interesting, cool names on that grid. Like honestly that's awesome.
1: Yeah. And then you get in you have, you know, the guys who just there's their big race for the year, they just throw everything they have at it. And it's also a big weekend of uh, racing as well. It's not just the six-hour. They also have TCR there as a support category, uh, the Transams, HQ Holdens, historic touring cars, and what's... If you don't have a Hyundai XL, what's the next worst car you can go racing in?
0: Oh, a mini challenge?
1: This is Pulsar.
0: Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <young. laughs> Oh, seriously?
1: The MRF Tires, Australian Pulsar Racing Association.
0: Yuck. I hate it <laughs> already. So, yeah, that's
1: going to be a cracker weekend.
0: I'm keen. That'll be a nice, a nice postscript to Easter lunch. And then roll straight from that into Paris-Roubaix. Yes. Brilliant.
1: Bring it. Bring it.
0: Of course, as well, there's the supercars at the end of the month, um, which we'll be keeping our eyes on. Um and then I believe there's the European Le one Series starting up next weekend as well, which will be. Oh, that's,
1: that's for another podcast.
0: That is for another podcast. That yes, I know that we haven't done in a while, but trust me, it's it's getting there. Maybe, perhaps we don't know yeah. it yet anymore. We,
1: we, when you have a COVID and a kid, and life changes, and things don't get and yeah yeah things don't get easy, but things. we're working on it. We are we're trying. Yes,
0: and on that note, thank you very much for, for watching support with me, Chris.
1: But, as always,
0: I hope you're adjusting to your new life, I hope the adjustment continues to go well, and I hope little your little baby Riddell uh, doesn't cause too many problems for you.
1: Well, she has tonight, so i better go sort this out.
0: <laughs> Classic.
1: And apologies if you heard her on the radio, on the audio.
0: On the audio, yeah. And apologies if you heard me coughing on the audio. It's been, as we said, it's been a bit of a week.
1: <laughs> it has been a bit of a week, That. I think uh, that's the sound of a train wreck happening. But hey, we got through it.
0: We, we In fact, we did. And it'll give me something to do tomorrow to edit. And it'll give, it'll give you something to listen to, uh, dear listener, now that you've gotten to the very end. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Chris, once again, for joining me this month. Our
1: pleasure, as always.
0: And we shall see you from the grandstands next month. Have a good month. This has been Michael Zolivari. Peace out.